became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 17, he he is identified by name, Jesus Christ. In verse 18, the only begotten of the Father, the one who explains him. So in verses 1 to 18, we have the Apostle John's thesis statement. Jesus Christ is God dressed in human flesh. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The Apostle Paul testifies, he is the image of the invisible God. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus claims, I and the Father am one. Then in John chapter 12, verse 45, Jesus is quoted, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. All this to say that the Apostle John opens this book of John with the most definitive explanation of the deity of Christ found anywhere in all of Scripture. Jesus is God dressed in human flesh. You want to get to know God? What he is like? Watch Jesus. The Apostle John tells us why he wrote this account. If you flip over to John chapter 20, and notice verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs, he says these, but he means these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. So first and foremost, John wrote this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then in believing that, that we might have life in his name. That is life both now and forever. Jesus himself said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly or have it to the full in the NIV translation, or have it rich and, and, and a satisfying life in the message. So knowing the Apostle John's purpose statement and his thesis statement, we should not be surprised at how the second half of the book, the second half of chapter 1 unfolds. The second part, John calls eyewitnesses to testify. And these eyewitnesses happen to be those who come from the very beginning of his public ministry, just when he's getting started. And the lead testifier, you'll notice, is John the Baptist. And then Andrew. And Andrew goes and gets Simon Peter. And then Jesus approaches Philip. And Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. And here, once again, the testimonies that they give. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Rabbi, which translated means teacher. We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the son of Joseph. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. John presents these eyewitness testimonies so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing we may have life, life as God intended it to be lived, both now and forever. Last week, we focused on the first 11 verses of chapter 2, where seeing him for who he is, that's God dressed in human flesh, through what he was able to do, turning water into wine, enables us to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. This morning, we want to continue on in chapter 2 and look at verses 12 to 22. And here we'll see the true identity of Jesus revealed through his passion and prediction while participating in a Passover festival in the temple of the city of Jerusalem. We'll work our way through this passage of scripture just as it is presented. There's a problem, and then there's a solution, and then there's an explanation. And so we see Jesus discovering this problem in the temple. He takes steps to resolve that problem, and then we'll hear some clarifying explanations. But if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, 
for he himself knew what was in man. You may be seated. Father in heaven, in the words of the psalmist, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. Teach us, we pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask these things by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. John MacArthur, back in 2008, wrote that there are two things that kill worship. One is man-centeredness, and the other is pragmatism. Both of those who have come to dominate what is called evangelicalism. Continuing, he wrote on behalf of the church where he has now served for some 48 years. He writes this. We have no interest in buying into pragmatism. That is the idea where we will do whatever works, whatever produces the effect that we want. In other words, regardless of what the Bible says, if it works, we'll do it. He says we're not buying into that. He goes on. Nor have we bought into the idea that the church needs to restructure itself to please men. Worship killers need to be eliminated. And Jesus, in this episode that is before us this morning, discovered a worship killer in the temple in the city of Jerusalem where he attended a Passover celebration. Notice the problem. Let's read again. Chapter 2, verse 12. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. Now, the Passover feast was one of three annual festivals that required all Jewish men to return to the city of Jerusalem and worship at the temple. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for just a moment. Make that chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. And this gives us an idea or will kind of catch us up on the Passover celebration. And I'll just skim through looking at a couple of verses here. Verse 1 in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And then drop down to verse 5. 
you are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. Then flip over to verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 16. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And those were the seven days following the Passover celebration. And at the Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So you need to understand, this Passover was a big deal. In fact, Josephus, the first century historian, reported that the city of Jerusalem population was probably around, at the time of Jesus, about 120,000 residents. And it swelled to 2.3 million people during Passover celebrations, or these three annual feasts. Jews migrated back to the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine? Just try to imagine for a moment. Wall-to-wall people, all returning to participate in this festival, celebrating God's supernatural deliverance of Israel from oppressive Egyptian slavery. And there's Jesus. He's among them. Just another face in a crowd of worshipers. Remember those books called Finding Waldo? The guy with the striped shirt? You'd have a crowd of people and you'd look through the crowd and try and identify him? Well, finding Jesus would have been next to impossible. He was just one of 2.3 million people returning to the temple in Jerusalem to remember, to retell the story, and to reflect on Yahweh's supernatural deliverance of their forefathers from Egyptian oppression. I suppose it would have been similar to our run-up to December 25th. And just like our Christmases, the Passover celebrations had become commercialized. Interesting. Having arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus made his way to the temple and found those there who were selling animals and money changers right within the temple itself. The sellers were selling oxen and sheep and doves to be used as sacrifices as part of the Passover celebration. Additionally, foreign currency was not allowed in the temple. It was not accepted. And so there were the many money changers and they were there to exchange that foreign currency so that they could, all males could pay that annual temple tax and maybe even offer some offering as well. Surely we can appreciate the services of these two groups of people. What worshiper traveling to Jerusalem would want the additional hassle of bringing an animal along with them? My goodness getting ourselves to the rock here at 10.30 on Sunday mornings can be a challenge some days. Am I right? The sellers and the money changers, they were there as a matter of convenience. And notice it's not the services 
that they were providing, but the location of those services that was the problem. They were in the temple. That temple that replaced the tabernacle. The tabernacle was first the first formal place of worship designed and ordered by God himself. It was a large, elaborate, portable tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant and was where God resided amongst his people as they made their way out of Egyptian slavery to the Mount Sinai where it was ordered and then through the wilderness to the land that God had promised their forefathers would one day belong to them. And once established in that promised land, King Solomon was the one who was allowed to build the temple. That first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians as they overrun Palestine. But as the exiles returned under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, another temple was rebuilt. The temples, like the tabernacle, were a place where people could come and worship Yahweh and where God could reside amongst his people. The Psalms often refer to this temple as the house of the Lord. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 26, verse 8. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. Psalm 27, verse 4. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O servants of the Lord. You, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of the Lord, the courts of the house of our God. Praise God. Praise the Lord. The Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for he is lovely. The last phrase of verse 16 here in John chapter 2 captures the essence of the problem. Stop making my father's house a place of business. The NIV reads, a market. And the New Living Translation, a marketplace. So from Jesus' perspective, the temple had been transformed from a place of worship into a marketplace. That's a problem. And so as we reflect on that, what does that imply for us? Are there any implications for you and me? And I would suggest just one. Show up. Jesus made Passover participation a priority. Remember, he left Cana, traveled 20 miles to the northeast to Capernaum, where he spent a few days. And then, because it was time to celebrate the Passover, he walked for 85 miles to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, so that he could celebrate the Passover. It's a lot of walking just to participate in a time of corporate worship. Here's a verse for us to think about, to memorize and 
to make a priority in our lives. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Worship killers need to be eliminated. And we can't eliminate them if we're not participating in corporate worship. Show up. Make times of corporate worship a priority. Let's move on from the problem to the solution. Notice chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So Jesus drove them all out of the temple, insisting that they stop making his father's house a place of business. How was this problem addressed exactly? Well, Jesus took the initiative. He made a scourge or a whip and physically drove them all out of the temple, according to verse 15. All the money changers and sellers along with their animals. And I don't know about you, but I'm having a real hard time visualizing how all that took place. Can you imagine it? The outer court or the court of the Gentiles, to be more specific must have been packed with people, worshipers, money changers sitting at their tables, the sellers with all their animals. And Jesus drives out all the money changers and sellers along with their animals. Interesting. The word translated drove is a Greek word, ekbelo. And it means to cause to go out or to leave, and often but not always with the use of force. To send away, to drive out, to expel. And so Jesus is kind of acting like a temple bouncer at this point. In Acts, Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and through us, they ekbellowed us into prison. And now, do they want to get us, get rid of us? Ekbellow us? Quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. And then in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, Jesus drove them out, or drove out, ekbellowed them, the evil spirits, with a word. Same word. John in no way here in John chapter 2 indicates how much physical force, if any, was involved. But according to verse 15, money was poured out and the tables were overturned. Maybe the presence of that scourge at least had kind of a visual persuasive effect. Who knows? Regardless, in the end, the people and the animals, their products were physically removed from the temple. And notice too, at the end of verse 16, Jesus' objection was clearly expressed. Take these things away. 
Stop making my father's house a place of business. Again, it was not what they were doing, but it was where they were doing it that was the problem as far as Jesus was concerned. I should mention that in my studies this week, I discovered these activities did not originate in the temple. In fact, initially, sellers and money changers were outside the temple, across the Kidron Valley, located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Isn't that just like things happen? It's a telling example of just how compromise works. Very seldom happens with a giant leap for mankind. It's more those tiny steps, those seemingly insignificant concessions that that in the end find us occupying the temple courts with activities that undermine the very purpose for which that temple was built. Or at least the very purpose of that court of the Gentiles. Here's a floor plan of the temple. Notice the court of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus showed up and where all these merchants were located. It was a place where Gentiles who were God-fears but non-Jews would come to, to worship Yahweh. Like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, for example. He would have been in the in the court of Gentiles and not been allowed to go any further than that. Isaiah's prophecy saw a day when, well, listen to this. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. God, through Isaiah, communicated his anticipation for a day when when all people, or as the NIV would say, they've translated this last phrase, a house of prayer for all nations. So one New Testament scholar offers the following. Jesus faulted the merchants for disrupting Gentile worship in the only place that was open for for them. So the so-called court of the Gentiles, which he goes on to say, was insensitive at best and evidence of religious arrogance at worst. So what, if any, are the implications here for you and me? Can I suggest just one? That sometimes... Worship wars are worth fighting. I'm not talking about insisting on personal preferences. Corporate worship is never about you and I. But anything that distracts from God-focused, God-honoring times of corporate worship need to be eliminated. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 may provide us with the best list of Essentials when it comes to corporate worship. 
They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Biblical teaching, authentic fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. We can do more, but we dare not do less than these four essentials. And we should only engage in more if they do not distract us from accomplishing these four. Remember, Jesus was not attacking the Passover celebration or even the sacrificial system, but the business or the busyness that had sprung up around it, initially to facilitate corporate worship, but eventually became a distraction, maybe even a deterrent or prevent the Gentiles from worshiping the God who is so worthy of our worship. The first implication is to show up. This one would be to fight. Fight those internal and external distractions that threaten to undermine your ability to become engaged in these times of corporate worship. Worship killers, they need to be eliminated and they don't surrender easily. It's going to require some discernment, determination, and an ongoing effort on our part. It's a fight. Let's look quickly at the explanations. John chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us that you, as as your authority for doing these things. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, It took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Initially, the disciples were struck by the zeal, or that David-like zeal for God's temple. And zeal isn't a word that we would normally hear a lot of. We would use words more like passion, or intensity, or, or eagerness. Some with more negative connotations would be, in our culture today, might be fanatical, or radicalized. Can you imagine being one of those new disciples standing in the temple courtyard that afternoon when Jesus began to make that scourge? Apparently, they didn't say a thing. But eventually, Psalm 69 came to their minds. And I would assume that that was a favorite, one of the favorite psalms in those days because it's the third most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. And it's the thing that that captured them was verse 9. King David was bemoaning the criticism that he was experiencing for being so preoccupied with, with thoughts of building this temple. Remember, God had said, no, you cannot build the temple, but your son Solomon will be able to build my temple. But that didn't prevent David from getting everything ready for his son Solomon. In First Chronicles chapter 29, it reads, Then King David said to the entire assembly, 
my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God. David gathered all the materials, made it real easy for his son Solomon. And Jesus' disciples thought they were witnessing a similar passion in Jesus when he cleared the temple of sellers, their animals, and the money changers. Zeal for the temple worship consumed him. In response to their demand, the Jews' demand, Jesus offered them a delayed sign which they totally misunderstood. The Jesus, the, the Jews approached Jesus demanding a sign that would serve to justify his temple clearing behavior. What sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? For them, it was an issue of authority. It's interesting to note that they didn't challenge him on what he was doing, but just who gives you the authority to do what you're doing? They may have already been ready to concede that these money changers or these activities were inappropriate within the temple confines. Jesus did oblige them. He did provide them with a sign, but it was a sign with a delayed fulfillment that they completely misunderstood. You see, they assumed that he was talking about the physical buildings in which they were standing. It took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? What they're referring to is the renovations of the temple that have been issued by Herod. They've been going on for 46 years. They would continue long after this. The renovations were not completed until A.D. about in the late 60s, at which time the Romans came in and destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. So that's what they're referring to when they say for 46 years this temple has been been renovated. In fact, the very words that were spoken here by Jesus would once again be recalled and used against him at his trial that would eventually lead to his crucifixion. The disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, and those Jews, they demanded a sign. Later, following his resurrection, Jesus' disciples remembered what Jesus had said and believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. The scripture they believed was Psalm 69, verse 9. Only this time, instead of just focusing on the zeal, they also understood the consumption part of the verse. Initially, it was the zeal for preserving this God-focused, God-honoring temple worship. Following the resurrection, the second half of the verse came into play. Indeed, it was zeal for God's house. And all that it stood for had consumed him, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Following the resurrection, their belief in Psalm 69, verse 9, had been confirmed completely. And not only David's psalm, but Jesus' very words. Destroy this temple, and in three days 
I will raise it up. Jesus' prediction was realized and fulfilled, and his disciple believed his every word. How could they not? In closing, I think there are a couple of implications we need to consider. The first is obvious. Believe. That is the reason why the Apostle John wrote this particular book and included this specific episode in the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. It provides more evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God dressed in human flesh. We need to receive him and believe in his name. There is no other way to become a child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12, we've studied it before. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Secondly, I think there is a worship implication here. It was no accident that Jesus referred to himself as a temple in that delayed sign he offered the Jews in verse 19. Destroyed this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The same way that Jesus repurposed those six stone water pots back in verse 6 of John chapter 2. In the same way, Jesus' life and ministry was going to transform temple worship. How ironic was it that God dressed in human flesh was now standing in the temple which was built to provide a place for the people of God to worship him and where he would reside amongst their people, amongst his people. He's now standing there in the flesh. And John chapter 1 verse 11 reads, He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. They did not recognize him. John chapter 4, a passage we'll eventually study in detail. If you'll flip there for just a moment. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 20. Jesus is interacting with that Samaritan woman at the well. In verse 20, it reads, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem it is a place where the men ought to worship. So the Samaritan woman is arguing with Jesus at this point. And those are her words. And Jesus turns around and said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The focus was about to shift from a place, a physical building, 
to worshiping in spirit and in truth. Jesus attacked a worship killer in a way that displayed his deity. Worship killers need to be eliminated. What are the worship killers in your life and in my life that need to be eliminated? Jesus, having traveled from Cana to Jerusalem via Capernaum for the Passover festival, found sellers and money changers occupying the temple. Jesus drove them out of the temple, insisting that they stop making his father's house a place of business. Jesus' disciples and the Jews responded very differently to Jesus' display of authority over temple worship. Show up. Fight when necessary. Believe who Jesus claimed to be. Did what the scriptures say he did. And will do what he promised he will do. Believe it with all of your heart. And insist on a corporate worship that is offered in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, again, we're so thankful for the opportunity to study Jesus. You dressed in human flesh here on the planet, representing you, the exact representation of you. So help us not to take these stories lightly, but to think through them carefully, to see the implications, and then to respond appropriately as your spirit enables us. We pray that we might be not just hearers, but doers of your word by your power and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.